Well, it's, it's been a while since I preached on Mark now. I think uh, it's been about two months. So you all still remember everything that we talked about last time, right? Well, in case you don't, I'll, I'll catch us up to speed. Two sermons ago, Jesus visited the village of his, his birth, where he was from. Well, not his birth, but where he lived. And um, he was met with rejection and disbelief. And the next sermon, the last one, he, we covered a larger section of chapter 6 with Jesus sending out his disciples, the incident of the beheading of John the Baptist, and um, then later um, with the, the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them to take no, no bag, no money, no food, no second pair of tunics, they went around in the villages of Galilee, casting out demons, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healed many that were sick. But they were also told to shake off the dust of their feet if they, if they left the village that didn't want to hear the message as a testimony to those who would not listen to their message. They were Jesus' envoys, doing his mission and going out with his message. After returning... From their own mission, they witnessed Jesus abundantly multiply food to feed a great multitude. In today's message, we'll see how Jesus shows the disciples that he is God and that he cares for them. That will be the focus of this message, the the care and the compassion of Jesus. He had compassion for his disciples, and we will also see how that carries over to us today. So as last time with Mark, I gave you a summary of what has happened already in in the series. At his baptism, Jesus was pronounced from heaven by God the Father to be the beloved Son. Afterwards, he moves about in Galilee teaching and preaching, and he calls his 12 disciples. And uh, we see that they take on a bigger role in the ministry of Jesus. Earlier on, I've defined some key key themes that goes through the book of Mark. It's the kingdom of God, the identity of Jesus, who who this Jesus is, and linked to it, the misconceptions about the Messiah, how people thought he was something. They had this, this vision that the Messiah would be this military leader who would come and get rid of the Romans for them and that he would establish a physical kingdom there. And also, discipleship is a big theme in Mark. <coughs> and Jesus has already said in Mark that by Jesus' coming, he is bringing the kingdom with him. The kingdom of heaven has come. And in parables with the seal, with the soils and the seeds, we see how the kingdom of God grows on earth. Jesus, Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth in full as the messianic king and he teaches us how to be worthy of that kingdom by becoming his disciples and we'll see how the disciples fare this morning as they row about on the sea of galilee in our prior text to just to set our setting the feeding of the five thousand men commentators say that it was a usual way of saying counting the men and not the women and the children so some speculate that it could be, have been up to 20,000 people. 
But anyways, it was thousands of people being fed with just some handfuls of food. And uh, they have baskets full of food afterwards. It's, the text says that not only were the people filled, they were almost like gorged. They were like, they, they had a Thanksgiving meal. They, they had eaten their fill, and so they were totally full and satisfied, and there were still lots and lots of food left. He created food in abundance, and we will see that in this text, he has to disband that crowd. And he disbands the disciples also because of their misconceptions about the Messiah, who he was and what he was sent to do. They saw Jesus and figured this was the Messiah, and he would finally get rid of the Romans. He would finally rid them of their problems. But Jesus had another lesson in mind, a lesson that would teach them a lot, and I hope it will teach us as well, how he cares for us. We will see this as the glory of, of God came near, which is my sermon title. The glory of God came near. This, this portion of text is, um, as, is in the form of a narrative. It's a story. Oftentimes you have some, some um, discourse or some arguments or some logic. But in this, it's a story and we'll follow the rise, the climax, and the the conflict that arises with it, and then the solution. And we'll see how Jesus sent them. This will be my first point. How Jesus saw them, and how Jesus sustained them. So my first point then. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Immediately, there's that word again. Immediately is such a common word in Mark. It's one of the most used words. It's like, then, 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 then. It immediately, right after, this happens. It's a very fast-paced, this documentary drama almost that is playing before us. And Mark doesn't specify much why he urges the action on. But uh, from last time, we see the 5,000 men and women and children. This is one of the biggest miracles Jesus has performed in Galilee in, in scope, in, in number of people reached, in a sense. John 6, uh, parallel to it, tells us why um, Jesus disbanded them, as it says, when this people saw what he had done, they, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And it says that Jesus perceived that they wanted to take him by force to make him king. They're like, okay, this is the Messiah. Let's do this. We're thousands of people. We're just fed. Let's go take the land. This is, this is our time. This is our moment. Mark does not get, go into it, so I won't either, but see here that there's some urgency to the words when Jesus says that he made his disciples. Maybe the disciples also got caught in, up in the fervor of the moment. 
When it says Jesus made his disciples, the Greek puts some more force to it. It's uh, Jesus compelled them or Jesus forced them to go into the boat and he stayed behind to dismiss the crowd. Because Jesus had no intention of becoming a military leader, leading a coup, he came to conquer, yes. He came to defeat an enemy, yes. He came to establish a kingdom, yes. But the people and even the disciples didn't understand how he was going to go about doing this. He came to conquer death. He came to defeat sin. And he came to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men, not on a physical throne per se yet. But he will when he comes again. Then we'll come to judge the world and set all things right. The first time he came, he came to die. And this is what the people do not understand, that he came to die, that the Messiah, the Savior, would come and die. So Jesus sent them by boat over towards Bethsaida on the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of the lake, while he stayed behind to defuse the situation. They went unwillingly, and they wanted to stay, but it was his will that they left, so they went. And as I read, as after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. And after, uh, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. There are three times in Mark when, when Mark specifies that Jesus goes to pray. It is, uh, it is in chapter one before he appoints his apostles here in our text, and in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed. Each time he specifies it's, it's by night, he is alone, and it's before a greater mission development, in a sense. We'll see next time we, 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 uh, we visit Mark that there will come a turning point, as I said last sermon, that he will soon leave the Jews behind, in a sense, to focus his attention on the Gentiles, on the larger scope, the larger area. But two things here before we move on with the, with the story of ours. We, as we've read this morning, we know that the disciples are in the storm from our reading. They, they get into a storm in the boat, but we'll get there soon. But knowing that, who sent them out? Jesus. Jesus sent them out. And the other thing is, what did Jesus do in the meantime? He prayed. So we'll look at these two things now. That it was Jesus who sent them, and Jesus prayed while they were out there. There are naturally times in our lives when you think, why, why is this happening to me? Why, why this thing? Why did this befall my friend or relative? Why am I in this situation? And it's not beyond the bounds of this text to speak of storms, that the, the storm that the disciples go through and draw a parallel to turbulent times in our own lives. I'm not stretching it too far. We've not come yet to that text, but we know that we know about it as we head into it. And I want you to see that they are in the storm because Jesus wants them there. As Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt has said a few times earlier, that nothing will mature your faith more 
Nothing will impact your Christian walk as coming to grips with the theology of God's sovereignty. Nothing will give you more peace and joy. Who directs us there in our situations in life? Who directs the plan of history? God. He knows all because he predestined all. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he has prepared good works for us to do. Sometimes you might be tempted to think since things are tough in my life I must be doing something wrong. I must have some sin that I'm going through that I've not confessed or not dealt with since I'm having a tough time in life. Not always, not necessarily so, although it could be. Sometimes it is because we make bad or poor choices. We have to pay the consequence for it um, in this life. Sometimes it is because we we simply do not know why we're there. It's not necessarily connected to sin or something that we have done so it's not our fault in that sense but we know from psalm 23 that the lord is your shepherd he leads you to green pastures and still waters it is he who leads you not to but through the valley of the shadow of death he leads you to good things and he leads you through bad things in a sense And it goes on, so fear no evil, for he is with you. It is Jesus who leads you through all to himself. It was Jesus who sent them on to the boat and out to the sea. He he sent them out, but as we'll see later, that he will also be with them. Secondly, if Jesus needed to pray, don't we? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, asks, What is prayer? And says that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confessions of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Some scripture sources here. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people, Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him. He is the one who sent you out. He is the one who knows what you go through. And he calls us to seek refuge in him. Psalm ten seventeen. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. He hears us whenever we are. Daniel 9.4 I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Prayer is also confessing to him when we fall into sin, and he will receive us with steadfast love. As Gideon talked about uh, the Trinity this morning, about it's not that God, is, God the Father is the mean man and Jesus is the humble servant who loves us. No, God is his full. His God loves us. And he receives us with steadfast love like the, like the, the son who went away 
to live his life of debauchery and sin. He came home and he, he hoped that his father would receive him as, at least as a servant. But the father receives him with steadfast love. He, he shows him that you don't understand what kind of a father I am. And God is the same. He is the father who shows steadfast love to us and forgives our sins. And lastly, Philippians 4, 6-7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, no, be made known to God. Let them be no, made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So spend time with your Lord. Make your requests made known to him, and you will find peace. So to conclude the first point. Jesus sent them. He sent them away from a false understanding of who he was and what he came to do. He sent them out to be by themselves so that they would experience life without him being there physically. And he sent them out so that he could spend time alone with the Father in prayer. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, are you experiencing doubts, fears? Pray to him. The Bible says, pray without ceasing. Not that every word that comes out of your mouth is a prayer. But make it a daily activity. Make it an hourly activity if you can. Long, short, both. Spend time in prayer and the spending of time. Sit down or lay down or whenever you pray. But spend time in, in prayer. Don't just rush through it. But also... Um, because it's, it says, as we see in our text, that Jesus spent time in prayer and he, he prayed from evening until the fourth watch of the night. That is somewhere in, the, in between the three and the six in the morning. So in the middle of the night, three o'clock to six o'clock. That's the fourth watch in, in Roman time schedule. But also, pray a prayer before an activity. Prayer is not, it's not necessarily a complicated thing. Before you enter church, Lord, bless my ears and my heart that I may be blessed by your word this morning. Or help me bless others today. Do it as you drive home, that he would guide your hands and your eyes as you drive. Are you receiving a difficult phone call? Pray, grant me wisdom, Lord, as you pick up the phone. Those small ones like that, I guarantee they will enrich in your prayer life tremendously. And not just pray if you need anything from him, but communicate with your Heavenly Father. Thank him, as the Bible says, pour out your heart to him. He inclines his ears towards his children. My son, he, he just loves to talk to me. He tells me about his day. He tells me about this funny thing he saw on, uh, on the water. He tells me that he saw some nice Christmas lights and he asks me for my help. Let's go to our Father in the same manner. Let's tell him about your day. Tell him about your doubts. Tell him about your ailments, your sufferings, your fears, your longings, and also what you need, of course. He says that you pray and receive to, to get. because You don't get because you don't pray for it, the Bible says. So pray to him for things you need and pray for just to pray. My second point then. Jesus saw them. Verse 
48 says, And he saw them, that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He saw them. It is as if you take a video camera and you go from the mountain where Jesus is and it's just panning towards the sea where the disciples are in the boat. And they're alone on the sea, away from their master, and they're making headway painfully. In John's John's gospel, it's accounts that the disciples were about five to six kilometers or three, four miles away from shore. And uh, as our text says, they are making headway painfully. That means they're having a hard time. Normally, even in even less favorable weather, like winds, rains, it would take normally about six to eight hours to cross the Sea of Galilee. They've been at it since evening. It doesn't specify when in the evening, but that could be anything anywhere from six to nine in the evening. And now it's three to six somewhere. So they've been at this for hours and hours. I don't know if you remember last time when we, not the last sermon, but last time we were on a boat with Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And this shark, as it says, this, uh, this wind, they, there was a phenomenon called the sharkia. In Arabic, Arabic it means shark. It came up suddenly and literally out of the blue because of the, of the geography. Warm wind could just sweep down and whip up the Sea of Galilee into a storm, into a frenzy almost. They were making headway painfully. The, the Greek gives it another nuance. They are straining at the oars. They are tormented at the oars almost. I don't know how much experience you have rowing. If you've tried rowing, I know my dad, he has. A casual row is fun. It's enjoyable. It's a good time, I would say. And it's also mo- almost like a good workout. So they even have rowing machines. Uh, I once was at camp with a friend of mine, uh, and we got into a canoe. He steered, and I was good for nothing else but to row. <laughs> if I rode and steered, it was just... So he he's sat at the back and steered, and I just rode my arms out. And young and inex- inexperienced as we were, 12 or so, we came to a place where the river started picking up, and it dragged us into a river, like a riverside, away from where the main camp was and where from the leaders of the camp and other participants were. And so I panicked. And I threw my all into getting back into quiet waters again. I strained at the oars just to get by. And I was, I was tormenting at the oars because my friend, he was, he was more skilled with steering, not so skilled at rowing. So I had to row us all, well, all, all two of us. I had to row us back. So I was tormented at the oars. I was straining. I, I thought that my life was ending. I was rowing for my life. 12 years or so that I was. 
I've rowed other boats and I know what it is to row. So I enjoy, I also enjoy using these rowing machines that I talked about. Um, I, uh, once I tried to give my all to see how fast I could go on this rowing machine and I, I did, I was heaving, sweating, panting and uh, <clears throat> I could row full pace, maybe a minute or two uh, on the machine. But imagine having to do it for hours, like you're, you're using your whole body to try to propel yourself forward. But the wind made it all, like they're making headway, they're going ahead, but it's painful. Like the wind is just battering them. The, the sea wants to go the other way. They're just slowly, they're using hours on this. That's where the disciples are now, rowing for their lives. Not just to get to the other side, because they could have just gone to another side. But they, they needed to get to shore to save their lives. It was dangerous on the sea when the storm, that particular kind of storm came. The, the boat could topple. They didn't have any vests. Um, they were not making headway, or at least very slow. Charles Spurgeon once said about this account that the apostolic crew rode and rode and rode, and it was no fault of theirs that they made no progress, for the wind was contrary to them, the opposite of them going against them. The Christian men may make little or no headway, and yet it may be no fault of his, for the wind is contrary. Our good Lord will take the will for the deed and reckon our progress not by our apparent advance, not as on how far we've come, but by the hardy intent by which we tug at the oars. So it's not the, the distance we cover necessarily in our lives, in Christian lives, but the intent of the heart. And remember my first point, it was Jesus who sent them out. And after all this rowing, he came to them, and remember, he saw them before he came to them. He was five to six kilometers away, up in the mountain. It was dark, it was stormy, it was windy. So last night as I finished preparing for this, I looked at the window and I could see open ocean out from Tasta. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but there are no street, li- street lights in the ocean. So it's difficult to see. You only see this pitch black, almost like blanket. Maybe they had an oil lamp or a lantern. We don't know. But Jesus saw them. I don't know if you've been out to sea when it's windy, but it makes waves and that distorts everything because if you're trying to focus on something that bobs up and down and you bob up and down and you're tossed to and fro. Sea water splashing in your face makes it really difficult to see anything, but Jesus saw them. And then he came to them, and this is half of the main point of this text that Jesus came to them and how did he come to them walking on the sea in the previous miracle he quieted the storm as he was on the boat and as awesome as that was someone could maybe be tempted to think well I'm sure glad that Jesus prayed and the sea quieted down but it could also be that the the sea were abating in itself. It was lessening in itself. Here he comes walking on the sea. People don't walk on the sea normally. 
I, I don't know if you've ever seen one. I haven't. I've lived on an island for 20 plus years. My dad has lived on an island 20 plus years. <laughs> you, you don't see that happening. Like, no people walk on water. We take a boat. That's what the disciples did as well. Jesus came to them walking on the water. You know what? You know what? Want to know what the Greek says here? This clears it up. Shows us the true meaning. Erkutai pros autos peripaton epites telases. He comes to them walking on the sea. It's the same. There's no room for misunderstanding. It is sometimes the Greek could specify or clear up like, oh, that's neat, but the English translation it's it's a good translation. There's nothing like, oh, but maybe in the Greek it says something else, or in the Hebrew it says something else. No, it says Jesus walked on the water. On it's like on top of. It's the same word that you use on top of land or on top of a stair. It's on top of. It's not anything like, oh, maybe it was something mystic. Some. Um, some have tried to explain it away, but like he found some sandbanks that he could walk on. But I don't see the likelihood that he walked for six kilometers on a sandbank road that no one else knew about. Isaiah 43, as we had as an Old Testament sermon text this morning. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Because I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And verse 16 Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a pathway in the mighty waters. There's no other way to translate it. Jesus walked on the water. Only God could walk on water. And this is what the point that Mark is trying to show us. As one commentator said, in walking on the water towards the disciples, Jesus walks where only God can walk. In the forgiveness of sins, chapter 2, and in his power over nature, also another storm incident when they are in the boat, chapter 4, walking on the lake identifies Jesus unmistakably with God. This identification is reinforced when Jesus comes up to them and he says, take courage, it is I. In Greek, it is I. He says, Ego aimi. It is identical with the self-disclosure of God's name to Moses. Thus, Jesus not only walks in Jesus. No, thus not. Thus, Jesus not only walks in God's stead, but he also takes his name. The second part of forty-eight is also the second part of the main point. He meant to pass them by. What does that mean? It means he meant to pass them by. That was odd when I thought about it more. At first glance, it, can, it might be confusing 
that Jesus goes after them, but he means to just go past them. This seems pretty counterproductive to what he is there to do, in a sense. However, this way of speaking, this passing by, after just identifying Jesus with God, enforces a way of speaking in the Old Testament that has a special force, signaling a powerful and rare self-revelation of God. At Mount Sinai, in Exodus 33, Moses asks God if he might see his glory. God then hides him in a rock in a, in a mountainside. And he says, when my glory passes by you, so Moses will be hid, the glory will pass by, I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. Later in First Kings 19.11, the same thing or similar thing happens to Elijah. He is hidden in the cleft of a rock, of a rock and Jesus passes by. The idea is shown in Job, in Job 9, 9.8 and 9.11 and links us to our text today. Who alone stretch out the heavens and trample the waves of the sea? Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Linguistically, like language, the, the way it's written, and thematically, it's the same as our text. So they're, they're written the same way, and it's not a coincidence. Job 9 tells us of wonders that only God can perform, that man cannot. Moving mountains, shaking the earth, obscuring the sun, and threads upon the waves of the sea. Jesus meant to show them his glory. The glory of God came near. And Jesus intended to make this glory visible. Like, you can understand what it means when God threads on the waves of the sea as an image you can picture oh like you can picture something that in, that entails this meaning you can as Gideon talked about you can almost picture the arm of God doing something but you don't see an actual arm come and do stuff it's images or image almost like poetry but the disciples they see it with their eyes it is then it's something entirely different they they don't only see god treading upon the waters they see jesus walking on water they see him treading on the water their reaction but when they saw him walking on the sea they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they saw for they all saw him and were terrified they are terrified they cried out, they, they're shrieking, they're wailing, because they think they see a ghost, a demon. Normally in the Old Testament, the ocean, especially when the ocean is churning or bubbling or stormy, it was a, a thought that there were spiritual entities that was ruling the ocean and they were making it happen to drown people. So in their mindset, in their culture, it would have been logical in the sense that if they see something walking on the water, something that's not logical, something that's not natural, the first thought that came to their mind was it must be a spirit of some kind. And they think that we're doomed. 
like the waves, we've been at it for hours, but now this demon comes in to finish us off. But verse 50 says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And again, when it says here, it is I, he says this, as I mentioned earlier, I, I am. In Greek, ego means me or I. It's where you get egotism from. And I, me means I am. So he's literally saying, I, I am. And I didn't, I didn't uh, notice this the first time I read Isaiah 43. But in 43.11, Isaiah 43.11, it says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. It's the name of God. He's saying, I, I am, which is the Greek form of Yahweh in Hebrew. It is the God, the name God gave Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. By doing so, Jesus wants to comfort his disciples that it's not a demon coming to get them. It's God showing them the glory and saving them. So the storms there show the disciples better who Jesus was. As with the disciples, we all go through times in our lives. Maybe you're in a storm right now. Jesus sent you there, and he sees you there, and he's walking towards you. Trust his timing and believe in him. The early church father, Augustine, said, He came walking on the waves and so put all the swelling storms of life under his feet. Christian, why be afraid? Jesus is walking on the water and he isn't terrified of the waves. He isn't surprised by them even. He's not affected by them because he is the God who made them. So why should we be afraid? So yes, there might be storms in your lives. We have all been there. We have had several, some minor, some bigger. But Jesus is with us in it. He leads us not to the storm, as I open with, but he leads us through the storm. His focus is not to harass us or just be a mean God. As one of our Psalms this morning said that, we are purified like silver seven times, and what comes out is even richer and even purer. That is a, pu- a, a thing that Jesus, God does to us. He purifies us. And one way is by making us go through storms. Lastly then, Jesus sustained them. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus' presence with them stilled their fear and their storm, but they're left perplexed and bewildered, and even hardened, it says, (coughs) for they had not understood it all yet. The text says that they were bewildered. They are amazed at what they saw. It doesn't specify that they believed what they saw. On the contrary, it says that 
They didn't believe it. They didn't understand it. They, their hearts were hardened. They were confused. <coughs> this hardening language is never used about insiders, in a sense, earlier. It's always the Pharisees hardened their heart, or the Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened his heart. It's always on those on the outside, in a sense. But here it, has, it happens on the inside, the Jesus' inner circle. They should have understood that Jesus was God incarnate. Who else could feed the thousands upon thousands of people? And who else could walk on water? But their hearts were too hard yet, as of yet. People do not believe in Jesus. It's not because they're not smart. It's not because they don't understand it in that sense. It is because of hardness of hearts. Sin in our lives causes calluses. It's like um, on the sole of your feet, the, the sole, when you tread, it becomes hardened because it's used so much. Like you should, should have seen my heels. They're awful. The callus is hard skin, basically. And sin causes calluses to form on our hearts. They make our hearts hard. They needed Jesus to give them new hearts. But fortunately, Jesus was not done with them yet. Until we die, God is not done with us yet in sanctifying us. He is glorified the more we are sanctified, in a sense. Until the last day, God is not done with any of us or anyone we know. For all we know, seeing the waves and the storm, Jesus might be on his way at this moment to any of us in our storm or in the lives of those we love and know. He's not done with anyone before their final day. (coughs) Quickly then, to wrap up on the last portion of it. When they'd crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever, whenever, uh, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they may, might touch even the fringe of his garments, like some small prayer tassels on Jewish coats, or, or on the, actually on the footstools of the cape, in a sense. And as many as touched it were made well. In this part, there's no teaching, no dialogue, not even a word from Jesus. People are flocking to him to get healed. He sustained them by healing them as well as he sustained his disciples. These people needed Jesus to heal their bodies, while Mark is showing us that Jesus is more concerned in healing their hearts. Final thoughts then. Spurgeon once said, I thank God for every storm in my life that has left me shipwreck on the rock that is Christ. The waves of the storm in your life is the pathway Jesus takes to come to you. All things work together for good for those who love him. Let me end with Romans, Romans 5, 3-5. Romans 5, 3-5. Not only, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, 
in character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let us pray.